Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Beedratty. It's summer. Yeah. It's Memorial Day weekend. Well, what what do you wear during the summer? What what Beedratty products do you, do you uh, do you wear during the summer? Shorts. Beedratty shorts. Yeah, okay. they got these great the Big Daddy cools. I really like them. They got a nice modern fit to them. So they come in a bunch of different colors. Highly recommend them. Um, and you're going to need new shorts this summer. Summer's here. I would imagine that you could wear them on the boat as well as on the golf course. Yeah, you can. They're good. That's the, the really nice thing about them is like they aren't you're they're really lightweight. They're really I mean, the name Big Daddy Cool. They're really comfortable to wear golfing or to golf, you know, depending on where you fall on the grammatical, you know, form but I, I think both of those people will object to <laughs> yeah you but then they look good like I, you can wear them casually to something with a, you know uh so and they aren't like that tech fabric so they're nice they're versatile uh recommend them they're you can buy them on bedratty.com if you know if people like if people want them we could get them with the fried egg logo on them too but i don't know we have a promo code it's uh fried egg 20 that's what it usually is. Yeah, I think Friday I that's what 20. It is. I'm pretty this sure. Is what thing, these are things that you should know. Hey, this is Garrett cutting in here. The promo code is actually fried egg 25. Fried egg 25. So you get 25% off. All right, back to the tape. So um, BeDreddy.com. And uh, now on to today's episode. With uh, We're joined by Garrett Morrison, managing editor of the Fried Egg, and uh, Stephen Proctor. Yes. Uh, so Stephen Proctor is a golf historian. He wrote a book about the life of young Tom Morris called Monarch of the Green that is very, very good. I highly recommend it. Um, and he's a fun guy to talk to. And, and today we are going to talk to him about challenge matches, about the history of challenge matches, of which, of course, young Tom Morris was a big part in the 1800s. But uh, this is intended to give some perspective to the matches that are happening right now during the pandemic, the match last week at Seminole, and of course the upcoming one at Medalist Golf Club featuring Tiger and Phil. So uh, we're just kind of getting Tom Brady uh, and Peyton Manning. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys too. Um, (laughs) I think they're going to bring some real human interest into it because they're going to be chopping it around and they're going to be really relatable. Maybe so. I I don't know. I, I don't have a sense for, how how good these guys really are. And, and you know what? And and if we're looking for relatability, Peyton Manning kind of exudes that. Tom Brady doesn't as much. You oh, know? No. Who has ever in their lives related to Tom Brady? I mean, even if he's playing poorly, he's probably going to look good doing it. You I'll know? tell you, there's one moment in Tom Brady's uh, life that I can think is relatable is watching the replay of him running the 40-yard dash. <laughs> that's very true very i mean true. i think that that's gonna that would be uh, what the way most people would look running it you know you look gas. yeah but um i think it'll be it'll be a fun match to watch i i'm excited i think those two i think not necessarily tom brady's not gonna bring a lot of spice to it but i think peyton manning could be the guy that's like that much needed relief especially then you've got barkley also doing the telecast i hope they don't overproduce this one like we saw last week uh where they just couldn't seem to get out of the way of of showing golf which uh which is 
essentially what people are turning turning the TV on to watch is golf, but you can't seem to show it. Uh, but this week, hopefully, I think this week will be much better. And I think they'll have learned a lot from the last match they did. Yeah. Do you think it's going to be a, a better product on, on TV? I think so. I, I can't foresee it getting worse than the last one, right? You can't do something a second time and be worse at it. Well, I mean, you never know. It, it just seems like there's a momentum that happens with these things where, where somebody just says, oh, why don't we add this? Why don't we add this? Oh, we should throw this in, you know? And and th- that's what you end up with. You end up with with kind of a mess. I think that just sort of happens without people really knowing that it happens. So I think I, the more I've thought about it is golf is such a challenging sport normally to broadcast because there's not one central field of play that everything's happening on, right? right? So they're always having to cut around, keep people updated as to what's going on, and almost weave, tell the story for the viewer because it's, it's impossible to know the story without having that because there, you can't watch 15 cameras at once uh, to see everything going on in the course. So the struggle is if they had, they probably have a golf producer for the most part, doing the, producing these shows, and the guy doesn't know anything except for this complicated, oh, like very produced broadcast where you're telling people what they need to know. Yeah. And I think if you had an NFL producer or an NBA producer produce the, these matches, they'd turn out so much better because they'd understand, okay, all we have to do is put the camera here, turn their mics on, and tell the announcers just... Just add to this. Do not do not talk over it. Yeah. Allow the people to watch the 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 game being played. You, you would you would hope that would be the case, and you know, with, with the addition of at least at least Peyton Manning to the mix, and he's on the the other team from Phil. So it seems like those two guys at least could have some back and forth and get a a, a little bit of a nice vibe going between them you know, maybe that'll happen. But in any case, I mean, beyond the kind of critiques of the broadcast that I'm sure will come, I mean, there's always going to be stuff to critique. I'm really looking forward to this match. You know, I was, I really look forward to last week's match and uh, thoroughly enjoyed watching it and kind of being in the golf community while it was happening. And I think the same thing is going to happen with the Tiger Phil match. There will be a scene on Twitter. People will be excited about it it'll be something different to do. And, uh, and I, and I just really appreciate that it's coming up. I, I think it's exciting and fun. Um, and, and it's great to you know see golf again. Yeah. The best case scenario I think is like for this to be a smashing success and it lead to more of them yeah, through the course totally. of the year, because I love this format of golf. I really do believe that there is a unbelievably great product in the idea of these smaller matches mm-hmm. and it and it's a format of golf that obviously has deep historical roots it get, goes back to the beginning of the game and that's what we're uh, talking with Stephen proctor about are you ready to get into it let's go i miss a green for example i'm already upset when i find my ball in the bunker i'm really upset and when i find my ball in a fried egg fried egg the dreaded fried egg fried egg fried egg fried egg fried egg fried egg lie i'm about ready to run off the golf course
golf obviously existed for a long time before the open championship prior to that, you know, kind of major stroke play competition. How did golfers measure themselves against each other? The way that you measured yourself at the very beginning of golf, and we're talking here about the early 1800s. So around 1829, 1830, players start getting involved in what was known as a challenge match. So what would happen is a rich guy from your golf club would put up 100 pounds and challenge a rich guy from a golf club in a rival town to put up his best guy and we'll play uh, 36 holes a day over four different golf courses. Uh, You pick two and I pick two. Winner takes the pot. And that was how it started uh, in the earliest days of golf. And so you be made your bones by winning those challenge matches marathons i mean marathons everyone you know you would play what they might call a friendly you know 36 holes uh one day over a course for say 10 or 20 pounds sterling but if you're going to do a big match it was always over multiple courses uh a really great match so all of the legendary matches took place over at least three golf courses and sometimes four and it was the idea behind that to test, like, to see who the best, better golfer was because different courses might favor different players? There was certainly some of that in it. A lot of it was there was huge town-from-town rivalries. So St. Andrews and Musselboro in particular were massive rivals. Uh, and they, you know, so the towns wanted to show off in front of their own people. So they wanted at least one of the matches to be held on their links, and then they would be held on neighboring links. Like a typical lineup would be you played at St. Andrews, Musselboro, North Berwick, and, uh, and Muirfield or someplace like that, depending on the time of, uh, of the age of the, of the, the match. But uh, you would play three or four courses and uh, 36 holes a day. And so uh, if you were to go out onto the links during one of these big challenge matches, what would you see? What you would see is the same thing you might see if you were at a prize fight. People in the modern age who listen to everybody speak in whispers on the golf broadcast have no idea what golf was like at the beginning. It was insane. So there would be a crowd, depending on the match. Uh, Some of the matches would bring thousands out, but the majority would bring hundreds, you know, two or 300. Uh, But there were no gallery ropes. Uh, the players would have the, the fans would be crowded all around the players and circling them. And in some towns, they got rather close to the opponent so much so that they tried purposely to constrict a swing by just hemming him in. And a match always had a referee, but they had a heck of a time controlling the crowd. A lot of the time balls would get kicked into gorse bushes. They would get stomped on. So, I mean, it was a rowdy scene. The other thing is gambling was a huge deal at these events. Gambling was the very reason that the events existed. The rich guys who put up the stakes, what they wanted to do was bet. These were sporting gentlemen who had land and property and big homes, and they didn't have anything to do but do sporting things. And gambling is one of their main things they wanted to do on whatever it was. So they would be betting like crazy, and the townspeople would be betting like crazy. Players would be betting on them caddies. Everybody was betting. There were bookmakers walking up and down the side of the course, and you could get a new bet if, for instance, the match was really tilted heavily in one player's favor and you wanted to take the other player, you could get 20 to 1 just 
from there to the end of the match right now. And uh, so it was a pretty wild scene. What kind of money could a professional golfer himself make on one of these matches? Well, you know, obviously in those days, professionals were looked down upon by the people who ran the golfing establishment. Uh, they were, you know, I think Horace F Hutchinson once referred to them as feckless, reckless creatures whose only <laughs> loves are golf and whiskey, uh, which they would never have denied, actually. But in any case, um, they played for a tip. So if you won, you would typically get something on the order of 10% of the stake. So let's say the stake was 100 pounds sterling. You might get 10 pounds if your guy won. It's almost what a caddy gets now. Yeah, exactly. If your guy lost, well, you know, he, you hope he's a bit generous, but you're not going to get very much. And so that's how it was at the beginning. It's it's funny, just listening to the description, it, it almost feels like the sport completely flipped in a way where the players were empowered, everybody's quiet around them, there's ropes, and and the almost the focus in the whole match was centered around the fans originally. Yes, no, and you know, uh, there's so many famous quotes from, even at the Open Championship, there were no gallery ropes, so an opening championship that came down to a closely contested final round would be have a massive crowd out there. They'd be, you know, there'd be an umpire trying to keep them under control. And one of the, you know, there's famous quotes like the players, please, the players, please respect the players. And the person in the crowd says, damn the players I've come to see. And, uh, you know, they, they, uh, it was a different time then. And, uh, a lot, a lot so much different than what we experience now and in a lot of ways i think better and more fun but i read somewhere that um the different areas like different areas produce different types of players was that true like different uh you know the guys from muscleboro had different skill set than the guys from you know um east lothian you know that's not I, you know it's probably true in some degree obviously mm -hmm. because Really, what was more true is the course you played your golf on at home would require different shots than the course that somebody else played their golf on. So, for instance, if you were a player that played all their golf at North Berwick, you were a great approach shot player because that was pretty much what you were doing all the time was approaching. You know, you didn't have it, the holes weren't especially long. Uh, it was a very tricky golf course. So you had to be great at run-up shots and chips and all that. A player from there would be better at those kinds of shots probably than a player from Musselboro who had less of those to make. And St. Andrews players, you know, they were great at the run-up shot also because they played on super fast greens. Those greens in those age were very, very quick compared to what players were experiencing most, not, not so much today because the green keeping is so much better, but the ground would get baked out and it would be uh, – really hardly any grass on it and be rolling pretty quick. So it was kind of tough to stop a ball on it. And you had to become expert at the art of running the ball up at a certain speed and letting it die near the hole. And uh, so they were, they would come with different skills. They did definitely take different mental approaches. Like the Musselberg players were way more aggressive than the St. Andrews players who would play a type of golf that was described then as pawky, sort of cautious, keeping away from the hazards. The Musselberg players were half crazy like Willie Park. <laughs> he would bet people, I can beat you with one club. I can beat you standing on one leg. I will play with your very expensive watch as my tee on all nine holes. And if I don't break it, it's mine. He, that's the way, you know, things were approached there. 
a little more sedate and upper crust at St. Andrews. Yeah, that, that's the sense that I get reading some of these historical accounts that the St. Andrews players were considered sort of, you know, re- refined and boring in comparison to the rowdy uh, Musselboro players, right? It, there was, there was almost so like, a, like a class conflict there or something. Well, they were just different towns. You know, St. Andrews had the university and most of the nobility were members at St. Andrews. Musselboro was a, was a coal mining town and a lot more industrial, you know, with, uh, so as always in the case, you know, the, the industrial town's probably going to be a little more loose around the edges than the university town. (laughs) And, uh, that, that was reflected in the golf for sure. It kind of reflects almost the way American team sports are where different, different stadiums have different dynamics, especially like say in college football, you know, going to Notre Dame's a lot different than going to LSU. That is a perfect analogy, Andy, and that's the way it was. Every course developed somewhat of a culture on its own, mostly based on its demographics and its membership. And so there were differences there. And they they were great rivalries, you know, particularly between St. Andrews and Musselboro. Would you say, Steve, that there was a kind of golden age of challenge matches at some point in the 1800s? Yes. The first the really the golden age begins in 1849 and in 1849 Alan Robertson who was the great golfer of the age as far as most people were concerned and his apprentice at the time Tom Morris or who had been his apprentice Tom had just recently left to open his own shop uh, they play a match against Jamie and Willie Dunn from Musselboro for 400 pounds sterling aside which is an astronomical sum of money in that age just to give you an example an average working man at that time earned less than 30 pounds a year, probably closer to 20. So 400 pounds sterling was quite a bit of money to have riding on a match. They played it over multiple greens, ending at North Barrick. I mean, excuse me, um, I'm forgetting where they ended it right now because I'm n- nervous on this podcast. But anyway, they played <laughs> over multiple greens. And it was weird because at the time, the way they scored it is who won on the most golf courses, not who won the most holes. Interesting. So on four links, and the person who won on three of them was the winner of the match. And if two, if you won on two links each, then the match was halved. And, of course, this match was the one that got rid of that scoring system because the, the Duns, I think they won by 13 holes at one of the four events. But – the St. Andrews guys squeak by by hole on their own green, and uh, then they uh, they barely win the match at the end because the guys from Musselboro's ball get stuck under a rock, a big giant stone, sort of Tiger Woods-like, just off to the left of the fairway there. And they ask the umpire, can we move the stone? And, of course, you know, they were not going to haul out a crew like they did for Tiger and move the stone. They said, of course, you can't move the stone. It's an integral part of the golf course. You got to play your shot. So they're hacking away, hacking away, hacking away. They don't get it out. They lose the hole by a million miles, which they should have won pretty easily if they hadn't hit it under the stone. And then they lost that match, and that was the one that decided it. But they had won by multiple, multiple holes, if you counted the holes over the four golf courses. So that changed that. But that was such a big deal at the time. It got written about for 100 years afterwards. And every kid who grew up after that, you know, grew up with that as a legend of their lifetime. And uh, so that was when it begins. And really, it extends as a major, major thing 
through about 1873, I would say, is sort of a turning point. Tommy Morse Jr. by then is a big superstar. He and Davy Strath pay uh, two 108 hole matches, uh, one in July and one in August at St. Andrews. Uh, Tommy hasn't been beaten in the Open Championship in four, the last four seasons, five. There wasn't an Open in 1871, but he'd won the last four Opens in a row. Uh, he was pretty much invincible, winning. You know, in 1872, he'd won 80% of his events that he entered. So he was winning at a clip that no one had ever even conceived of. Just giant crowds came out for that, five or 6,000. The Ladies' Home Journal covered it, for Christ's sake. And uh, that was probably the heyday of it and the thing that was, uh, I would say, the biggest one that has ever occurred. After that, it still continues really up through the early 1900s, but less frequently and other things become more popular like tournaments and exhibitions and things like that. I listening to you talk about it. It's almost like these are like playoff series, you know, with the, with the multiple days, the multiple courses. And and I imagine just like you see in a series of uh, in, in the NBA uh, where, you know, the, every game, the, the relationship between the opposing parties gets a little bit more contentious and chippy is the same oh my gosh, same yes. thing that happened in is there any specific examples of of this type of uh uh relationship evolving through a match oh my gosh yes so 1870 there is the third in a series of great matches between old tom morris and willie park senior guy who was betting that he could play nine holes from the top of your watch so the last uh last round of that match takes place in Musselboro, Willie's hometown. That is a prescription, obviously, for disaster. Tom is winning, too, at the time, which is, uh, which is also stokes up the partisan pride quite a lot. Anyway, the match got so incredibly contentious that uh, the umpire halted it because he said it was just impossible with the behavior of this crowd for fair play to continue. They were just really abusing old Tom physically crowding him around, not letting him have a free swing, kicking his ball into the bushes and everything I was mentioning before. So the umpire stops the match and there's a bar there at Musselboro called Mrs. Foreman's that was right off the golf course. I believe it's off the fourth hole, but I'm not, I can't remember right at the moment. In any case, they go into the bar there and the umpire says, we're going to cool off and we'll come back tomorrow and finish these last six holes. And Willie Park says, there is no way that we are quitting. And he goes out and plays the last six holes. Uh, so the, uh, he plays the last six holes and then he writes publicly in the newspaper demanding the, the purse saying that he'd won. Tom had quit, that he had refused to come out and play. Well, Tom was just doing what the umpire said. So then the ends up, the end result of this whole thing is Tom comes out the next day. He plays the final six holes with the umpire and is declared the winner, but he had played the last six holes in 28 as opposed to Willie's 22. So Willie played far better golf. Uh, that particular afternoon and probably would have won the match if it had been able to continue, if the crowd had allowed him to continue. Uh, Anyway, the up result was that Willie sued uh, and it ended up in court and it was uh, the whole process was vacated by a judge. So the match and everything that had happened was uh, absolved. Nobody, everybody got their money back and it was, uh, they didn't rejoin that battle until 1882 when Tom is 60 and Willie was 12 years younger than him. So Willie was not, you know, 48, not quite 50. And uh, Tom crushed him then. So the referees were, you know, 
still the uh, the you know much controversial then as they are now. <laughs> well, you know that that particular referee was a guy named Robert Chambers, and he uh, he was a very famous publisher, and you know he loved the Morris family. And when when young Tommy died, it's he's the one that writes the the elegy to a golfer that is like this really wonderfully overwrought poem in praise of young Tom. So he may have, uh, you know, I would assume he was an honorable man, but you know, we certainly <laughs> want Tom to get his fair treatment. The, the Musselboro crowd probably wasn't particularly kind toward his. Uh, no, you know, they his... were notorious <laughs> and late, probably the last one of the two or three last great matches ever takes place in 1899 between Harry Varden and Willie Park senior's son, Willie jr. And, uh, Willie wants the match to be played at Musselboro, his course, and Ganton, where Harry works at the time down in England. And Harry says, there is no force on earth that's getting me to play a match against you at Musselboro. Forget it. And they ended up doing it at North Berwick and Ganton. But that was the reputation of Musselboro by that time. Harry was like, that's, not a non- that's a non-starter. We are not playing there. Uh, <laughs> even, course, in, even in 1899. By then, too. But I think Harry's main concern was the crowd. He feared mm-hmm. no golf course. It, it was it, it was a place where a lot of balls got kicked and stepped on. Yes, it was a, a lot of things of an unsavory nature when you were playing and you if you were not the player from Musselboro, if you were from Musselboro, well, that was a different matter. So you got the Parks, the uh, the Morrises, Harry Varden. Uh, who were who some other uh, formidable challenge match players? Well, um, you know, Tommy and Davey. Were, were were two great ones and they played a lot together and played as a they they had a standing offer that they kept in the paper we'll take on any two for a hundred pounds sterling and they were going to do this that would, with their this own would money be davy strath really worried. Right? pardon me this would be davy strath davy strath yes yeah so right. they would offer had a standing offer as but willie did anybody in the world who wants to take me for a hundred bucks here i am and they put it in a newspaper. Yeah, yeah. It was they were published in Bell's Sporting Life or various places like that. Uh, I hereby challenge Willie Park. You know, this is a great little story. Willie Park in 1854, senior, he wants to play Alan Roberts because Alan has this reputation of invincibility and he doesn't believe it. He wants to play him one on one. So he puts an advertisement in Bell's Sporting Life saying, I offer to play any player, and then he names him old Tom Morris, Alan Roberts and names them another for a hundred pounds aside, name your day and name your courses. And, uh, then they don't answer the, the, the uh, challenge. So he goes to the Royal and ancient golf club meeting at St. Andrews and challenges them in person. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Alan wouldn't take it up then either. He, you know, Alan, my own view of it, and there would be a lot of historians who disagree, but my own view is Alan thought if he played Willie, he'd get killed and his reputation for invincibility uh, would be destroyed. And that is, that is my personal view. Is is that something that happened regularly is where, you know, a, if some, if a player just knew they were going to get beat, they just would decline the challenge. You know, y- yes. At the beginning, it would happen sometimes. You know, I think you might also take the view that Alan felt like I have, you know, I'm the King of the Hill. When you beat somebody, you can come and challenge the King of the Hill. Barden refused to accept uh, the challenge from Willie Park initially, and then Golf Magazine just called him right out. You know, you can't be the champion and not accept a challenge. If you're going to be the champion and somebody challenges you, you got to answer the challenge. The papers were more aggressive then, too. You know, they would just call people right out. You know, every time an Englishman won the Open, for instance, in the 1890s, 
they would have, you know, have a, like an admonition to Scotland. They better look to their laurels at their own national game and this and that. So papers were a little tougher then too. I was going to ask about the newspapers, actually. It, it seems to me that there was a kind of like symbiosis between the newspapers and these challenge match golfers in in building up the popularity of the game, right? Because the matches made for, for such great content, as we would say today. Yeah. Um, retelling the stories of the matches in the papers was great fun and and also a, a great source of information for historians today. And so w- would you say there was that kind of uh, relationship, this mutually beneficial relationship between the newspapers and the golfers all, you know, kind of uh, with the result of making the game more popular? I would say that, yes, there was a relationship, but it was between the newspaper and the landed gentleman who put up the money for the match. You know, the professional golfers were pretty much nothing. Have you seen Shakespeare in Love? There's yes. one where the guy comes into the middle of a theatrical performance and says, who's that over there? And he says, oh, nobody. He's the author. Yeah. And that was pretty right. much <laughs> the way it was with professional golfers. He's nobody. He's just the golfer. So it was good for the gentleman who put up the stakes if it generated a lot of interest because then they could get a lot of action. That's what they were looking for was betting action, gambling action. A lot of them would be involved in betting at multiple levels on these these events. The newspapers, it was good for the newspaper just because for the same reason everything's good for a newspaper, which is it makes people pick it up and read it. So they uh, they definitely, but if they were doing anything for anybody, it was not for a professional golfer, I can tell you that. Uh, they weren't even allowed in the clubhouse. They had to change their shoes in a shack somewhere. You know, they weren't uh, they weren't uh, getting any any love from 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 anybody except the person they won money for, usually. So moving forward in time a little bit, right now I know you're working on a book about the 1890s. By the 1890s, obviously, the Open Championship is is very well established. It's been going on for mm-hmm. three decades, I suppose, at, at that point. And, and that helps to usher in a, not exactly maybe a stroke play era, but more popularity and validity for this tournament stroke play format. And so by the 1890s, with the Open Championship happening, what is the importance of challenge matches at that point? Well, you got to keep in mind that the Open Championship was the only regular stroke play event that happened annually at that time for professional golfers Mm. For for a while, but it didn't last forever. St. Andrews had an annual tournament as well for professionals. Uh, that was associated with one of their meetings. Almost all golf events were associated with the meeting of a, of a club, of the Royal and Ancient, of the Honorable Company, of North Berwick, of Muirfield, or of one of those. So almost all of it would be in association with that. And in fact, the challenge matches were originally put on as entertainment for the rich gentlemen and the people who attended the meeting and also an opportunity to gamble. Then when you get into the 1890s, The thing that changes about challenge matches is that now you're in a period where golf courses are opening all over England and Scotland like never before. And so what really becomes the money-making machine for professional golfers, and that changes the equation for them financially the most, is that exhibition matches, one day little exhibition that you put on, a foursome of Harry Varden and John Henry Taylor against James Braid and Sandy Hurd, say, two Scotsmen, two Englishmen, to open the new course that's coming up here in Lancashire or whatever it is. And then you would get a paid a set fee to appear. 
you know, and so like, for instance, Harry Varden and John Henry Taylor and those guys, they were making 16 pounds, 15 to 10 to 15 pounds for every single exhibition they appeared in, win, lose or draw. They might be able to do as many as 20 or 30 of those in a year. And so that was a big, big chunk, the majority chunk of their income at that time. They'd be working for a club that was paying them somewhere between 50 pounds and 75 pounds, probably more for champions. But, you know, they weren't their base salary was low and they were making their money in exhibition matches and tournaments to the to the extent that they were good in tournaments. The tournaments only paid five places or six places, sometimes 10. So you weren't going to make a lot of money in tournaments unless you were top of the leaderboard guy. So there were fewer of them. But you still had to make your bones as a player by winning a challenge match against an established golfer. For instance, John Henry Taylor. In 1893, John Henry Taylor is just starting out in his professional career. He's been a professional for like two or three years now, and he needs to make a name for himself. And it so happens that the great St. Andrews golfer, Andrew Kirkcaldy, is temporarily filling in at a course to train right away from him. So they set up a 36-hole home-and-home match between him and Andrew Kirkcaldy, his, the president of his golf club does, John Henry's, and Taylor wins. And then all of a sudden he starts to get some recognition and some opportunities. And then the following year, he wins the Open Championship and is the first Englishman to win the Open. So that's how you would prove yourself. And some of it was your own self-confidence. You know, you went into the Open with a lot more confidence if you could take down one-on-one a player who was always a threat to win the Open and had been for many years. So that was how they fit in then. There were fewer of them, but the big ones were still huge. The What I would consider to be the finale happens in 1905 when Scotland is just getting killed on the golf course year after year by the English, which you can imagine nothing galls the Scots more than losing to the damn English. So <laughs> they, uh, they, they decide, you know, that they're going to take them on at what they would consider the true game. And they get their two best players, James Hurd and Sandy, uh, James Braid and Sandy Hurd. And they play a long four, four green 36 holes a day match against Harry Varden and John Henry Taylor, the two principal antagonists from England. They just get annihilated. I forget what the final score is, but it's like 13 and 11. You know, 13 holes up with 11 to play. So complete humiliation for the Scots in that. And then, you know, after that, they begin to really fade from the scene. And that's pretty much the tail end of that age. With the challenge matches, were they historically always two-man best ball, or did they have different formats of within the you know four four rounds at thirty-six holes at four different courses? They would always, in the beginning, always be played as a foursome, alternate shot. That okay. was the only form of golf really for the first three or three hundred and some years. Then they then occasionally they would have a single because they wanted Tom versus Willie. You know, but they only had singles or foursomes. I'm not aware of any challenge match of consequence that was conducted as a better ball. That was a sort of an English. One of the things the Scots hated about the English is they they hated the fact that the English loved handicap competitions. As far as they were concerned, a real medal, a real cup is won by the lowest score. This idea that you could win without shooting the lowest score, they thought of as insane. That's not golf. They also hated stroke play. Freddie Tate, who's probably one of the great Scots golfers ever, would say that, well, score play is no more a game than rifle shooting. A game is when you play someone else, right? And they just, they didn't like the exception with stroke play in England. They particularly didn't like it with handicaps. And they really hated the thing the English invented called the bogey competition, where you played against par 
or you know what was conceived then as par, as opposed to against an opponent at all, or even against a field. You just played against the, what they called the ground score of the course. I, I'm curious if you know anything about it, but uh, the, you know what I'm just thinking about golf today and and golf then and with with match play and you had these raucous, highly engaged crowds watching these challenge matches. How did crowds differ in like the open with the stroke play competition? Were they bigger? Were they or were they smaller? Were they more tame? Do, do you know anything about that? Yes, uh, the open crowds were tended to be not as big as a super powerful match like Tommy versus Davey or Willie versus old Tom or that one that I was just speaking of in 1905. Those might get 10,000 people there. An open would usually get somewhere closer to 1,000, maybe 2,000 for a really big one. You know, And some of them, like when Tommy was in the position to win the belt in 1870, there was a very large crowd for that one. But on the rule, they would be... Um, smaller crowds and they would also be a little better behaved because especially in the early rounds because there wasn't quite the partisan fervor that's involved in a match a match almost always involved like you were saying Andy town against town and that just creates a different level of you know fan fervor than watching somebody play good golf against a whole field it would get rowdy in a final though if it was close like 1898, you know, the final between Harry Varden and Willie Park Jr. at Presswick comes down to one stroke on the 18th hole from four feet away. You know, that one would get loud and, and, and difficult for players. But, but most of the time, it was a little bit more sedate than a match. So I want to I try out a theory here. It, it seems like the more the kind of center of power in the game of golf moved away from Scotland, the more the challenge match declined as the primary form of golf or the most important or prestigious form of golf, right? Cause by the, by the early 1900s, the game has, has obviously expanded to England and become very important there. And it's also beginning to become important in the U S and it seems like in, in England and the U.S., there aren't these kind of rooted traditions of matches that right from the beginning, you know, stroke play seems to be the most prestigious way to play the game and to identify the best players. So is, is there some validity to that where, you know, as golf moves away from Scotland, that the challenge match kind of, you know, declines as the, as the power moves elsewhere? That is completely true, Garrett. And it's true on a much broader scale than that. You know, the farther the game moves from St. Andrews and the, the center of the game, which was then in Fife and East Lothian, the farther it drifted from its traditions and the more different it became. And that really picked up speed in England, as I was mentioning a couple minutes ago with the handicap competitions and the focus on stroke play. But the killer is when it moves and gets big in America because Americans had a whole different point of view on the game than Scots. For one thing, they practice like crazy and no Englishman <laughs> or Scotsman ever practiced. They just played. They might practice in the sense of taking a club they were having trouble with somewhere out in the middle of the golf course and hitting a lot of strokes with it to see if they could figure it out. But they didn't practice the way Americans practiced. And Americans also were much more individualistic as a culture than any European culture that I know of. And uh, so the focus on your score in America was quadruple, even what it was in England. So, so yes, the more that it went away from Scotland, the more different 
the game became, and that applied first to challenge matches and then to lots of other things. It it seemed like in America the origins centered around exhibition matches that which you already alluded to took away from some of the challenge matches that and as well as tournament play. Yeah, that was it definitely in America. There was very regular scheduled tournaments from the outset. And by that time, there were very regular scheduled tournaments in England, too. You know, at 1901 is when the British Professional Golf Association is formed and they set up a whole qualifying system for their new championship, the PGA Championship, which in those days was sponsored by the News of the World newspaper and was known as the News of the World Championship. And so there was a whole series of tournaments during the year that earned you quality you know, points or whatever to get into their championship at the end of the year. So that's the beginning of what an actual schedule is. And that, so America doesn't really start golf seriously till about 1888. So by the time American golf gets really going in the early 1900s, after Harry Varden pays a visit there in 1900, they already have the benefit of seeing how the structure has been created over in Britain. And they just replicate it pretty much event for event, uh, tournament for tournament. And in, in, in a way, that tournament schedule was created in order to create, you know, similar competitions across the country to get qualifiers for the big tournament. So it wasn't, you know, it was a way to accurately measure, you know, who the the rightful players were to be in the in the big tournament. Yes, that was a big part of it, Andy. And another part of it was what professionals needed was more opportunities to earn money. And so it created many, many more opportunities to earn money in tournaments. Honestly, in some ways, it's like today's tour because it's kind of aimed more at the middling professional than at the John Henry Taylors and Harry Vardens of the world. Because they could still earn way more doing a challenge match. They could earn the most of anything doing a challenge match. Just like, you know, Phil and Tiger showed last year that they could just play for the same amount of money as the FedEx Cup. Yes. The entire tournament, the entire year competition, one day. Yeah, well, in that age, yes. But I think really, Andy, is what happened is if you were a championship winner, you were the one that got invited to every exhibition match. So you're just cashing, just ringing up the cash register, you know, twice a month, three times a month. Whereas if you were in 52nd, well, then you probably didn't get invited. But when there was... 15 tournaments during the year instead of three, you know, you could, and you're eligible to participate in all of them by virtue of your membership in the PGA as a golf professional. You then had many more opportunities to earn money and to get yourself noticed that might get you invited to an exhibition match or a challenge match. So it was a multiple multi-purpose thing. A lot of it was just to create more opportunity for the professional golfer. So the, you know, the challenge match has morphed into something else it morphed into something else in the 20th century maybe even by like the 1910s by the war years when bobby jones was playing some of these exhibition matches and 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 then of course by the 60s we have shell's wonderful world of golf and these different uh, from that point on these different permutations of a television product designed around a match between well-known players and so you know the role of matches between prominent players has completely changed it has it has become something else and that's what we have today with these matches during the pandemic they're they're on that model of the kind of television product that has a a, a charitable intention and that features the best known players of the day but nobody really takes them seriously as a measure of who's the best player 
Yeah, no, now I would think that you're thought of really as, as uh, you know, I love the one that they did at last year between Tiger and Phil. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of things that were wrong with the broadcast and this and that. But Andy, you talked about this on your podcast and I had the exact same observation. I live on a farm with my brother-in-law who's a rugby player. All of his friends are rugby players. I watched the event up in his game room with like 20 rugby players you know, they play golf, but they play golf mainly to drink, you know what I mean, and hang around with their buddies. They're not golfers in the classical sense of the world, but they love that match. They were betting money on shots. They were they were just really interacting with golf in a way that you seldom see what I would consider to be the routine sports fan, which they all are. They live around sports, especially college football, just loving golf like that. We, I don't know that we, we've never had an individual get-together that was golf-related except a Masters with with Scotty's friends. So it was kind of interesting in that way. And, but it's more of, I don't think it has the same cachet as a challenge match anymore because it's not a serious competition. It's sort of a a show that's being put on. I think there's also a lack of hometown pride, you know, where these, these towns and, and it's the same way with like, you know, I just finished watching the the last dance and I grew up a bulls fan. I had, you know, I have tremendous bulls pride. You know, no matter who's on the team, but obviously those years where you're 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 rooting for your team and you're rooting for your player. One of the things that these head to head matches provide is an opportunity. It's like similar when, you know, I get in the debate between Ernie and Phil all the time. And and you see the people that back Ernie and the people that back Phil because it's a one versus one. It's a much easier way. And I think that's the thing with the difference between the golf tournaments are better for the player, the whole group of professional players but for the fan and for the general public the challenge match is a much easier and approachable match to watch because you don't have to you're never missing anything in a tournament you're missing 99.9 percent of the action because you're only watching one shot at a time or one group at a time exactly and you, you you're so right and you know i when they first put out that premier golf league thing I was thinking, you know what they should do is they should resurrect the challenge match. Let's have Adam Scott play a match over four courses, Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath for Adam Scott versus two courses that, uh, you know, some great golfer in the United States picks out as his courses that he wants to play on. That would be fun for fans to watch. Play two courses in Ireland with Rory against Brooks. Brooks plays whatever two lousy-ass Florida courses he wants, and Rory plays two great courses in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the possibilities are, are really tantalizing. And, but, you know, I think something that was missing from the, the first Tiger-Phil match, and, and, and obviously, you know, I, I, I liked it too. I thought it was, I thought it was a, a, a great idea and something that really generated unusual interest. So I'm not trying to bash that match. But the fans weren't really part of that match, right? We talked about how integral the galleries, the fans were and and their rowdiness, their excitement were to the early challenge matches and the match at shadow Creek really lacked that. Now, of course, at these matches during the pandemic, we we can't have crowds. We can't have fans for, for obvious reasons, but at shadow Creek, I, I wish there had been a sense of that rowdiness. I almost wish that that, 
that uh, uh, match had been played at, at TPC Scottsdale or something to really see what was going on in people's homes during that match. Because I think people were getting excited, even if the level of the golf wasn't very high. But the, the potential for drama in a, a one versus one match like this is truly so high. And I would love to see a, an engaged big gallery I just thinking about this to me, it seems like the closest thing today to a challenge match is the Ryder Cup. That is exactly yeah. what I was going to say, Andy. I agree 100%. The atmosphere, you know, the incredible, intense pride that's on the line between countries, that is what a challenge match represented. What's ironic is everybody's searching for like, oh, you know, there's a big power struggle. You know, one of the reasons the PGA Tour might absorb the European Tour is just because of the Ryder Cup and the amount of money that's generated from it. So you have this uber profitable, you know, property, golf property that's essentially based very the most similar format of golf to the beginning of competition of golf, which was also extraordinarily popular and not just among golfers. I mean, I imagine that this led a lot of people to get interested in the game. I know my friends love watching the Ryder Cup that aren't big golfers. And it's like, and yet we still don't ever look and say, why don't we do more of things like that? And instead of doing things like it, they just tried to copy it with the President's Cup. It's amazing to me, Andy, that the PGA Tour and the European Tour jointly cannot realize the formula that makes their main event such a great success and completely ignore it in every other enterprise they undertake. You know, it's just like, I'm so baffled by that. And I just don't get it. I don't care what level you're at. If there are two good golfers playing and they both happen to have their game on that day, there's going to be amazing drama in the, you know, thrust and parry of a match compared to uh, the kind of thing that you see weekly on the PGA Tour. Last year's amateurs were both amazing matches. The one thing I would say about the match that happened last year's, I think the fans would like it a lot more if they played for their own money. And it's not like they don't have enough. Then, then you would get some stakes. Let's play for $5 million aside and we're putting up the $5 million. <laughs> now, now we're talking. Or even if it was just a part, uh, even a portion. If it's, you know, we know we're going to make a bunch of money TV wise and we can put money from the TV pot in to make it bigger. But even if it's a hundred thousand, you know, I don't necessarily think it's the general it's, it's the idea that exchange of there's, I have a really good buddy that, you know, he's a real, he's a good player. And we'd had, we had a summer where we had matches and I just kept beating him and one match he started, you know, he's he's three up or four up through five holes. Like just, and he starts John, he hasn't beaten me in months and he's John. He's in, and, and I end up, I end up coming back and it was just for 20 bucks. And I end up coming back and beating him. And I have, he was so distraught at the end of the round. He gave me the 20 bucks and I have a picture of, of the $20 of a hand and, it, and it, him with his head in his hands. <laughs> and, and, and it's just, it, it, whenever he calls me, it comes up and it's just like the, that exchange of money is like the worst having to open your wallet and hand, so, hand your opponent money is one of the worst feelings in golf. Yeah. And the mm. rule should be that they have to hand over the hundred K on the final hole. If you lose hand it to him right there on 18, yeah. have it in a satchel. 
you know, I'd be fine with with this, the uh, the uh, the old rules, which is uh, somebody puts up a big stake and winner gets this percent, loser gets no percent. And it would bring out a, a different dimension of the competition because something that I got the sense of, I don't have any proof of this, but something that I got the sense of in the first match was that neither Tiger nor Phil was playing particularly well and they didn't care. Phil cared and Tiger didn't, you know, it meant yeah, a maybe lot so. for Phil to win that match, at least I think personally, and probably just to have right. at least one thing he can say about Tiger Woods. That's not, uh, he killed me. And uh, but I don't think Tiger cared a whit about whether he won or didn't. One one of the disadvantages of matches are blowouts. You know, yes, that's that's like one of the big fears. Is oh, it's a snooze fest because one guy plays lousy. And something I was I I, I went to the the All Star NBA All Star game this year, and that's always been one of the big contentions of the All Star game was like. You know, these guys don't try. It's not really a competition. And they went with a new format this year, the Elam ending, which essentially gave a player, once they reached a, you know the third quarter, they gave one team a certain amount of advantage, and it was play until here, until you score this many points. And then all of a sudden, it was like one of the most incredible games of basketball I've ever seen because you're seeing the best players in the world all on this on two teams and they were playing it was like they were playing pickup basketball it was it like is it pickup basketball that's yeah. how you play pickup basketball yeah so Mike I'm wondering if like if there was a way you could do that where it's almost you could create a new type of format that's match play based but you know after nine holes your lead transfers to a you win. You need to win this many more holes, and it becomes almost sudden death. Yeah, I think that would be fun. You know, I think it would require some thinking out. But I, I love that kind of thing. I think golf is not inventive enough. You know, we just have the same seventy-two hole grind every week. Yeah, I mean, it's you just got to experiment. You know, how how can we bring back some of the intensity of the early days of challenge matches? How can we reintroduce some of that drama and unpredictability and just plain insanity to the game? Alternate shot is a format that by its very nature introduces a lot of volatility and instability into it. And one of the things I think is going to be fun about Sunday's match is that a portion of it is going to be played at alternate shot. And then you're going to have Tiger hitting it from wherever Brady, I mean, wherever uh, Manning or whoever it is. I think it's, is it Tiger with Manning, right? They, uh, it's Tiger with Peyton, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, wherever he hits it, Tiger has to play from. And, you know, there could be some interesting adventures that go along with that. And that was part of what made the early matches great to bet on because you never knew what would happen. Because, you know, one player could be off form. Frequently, for instance, Tommy played with his dad. And his dad's form was off and on. He had a lot to do in life. He was laying out golf courses. He was managing the green at St. Andrews. So his game came and went. And, you know, Tommy could beat most people's best ball by himself. But a lot of days, his father made it impossible for him. And that introduced an element of, of uncertainty, even against a great player like Tommy, that made it great for betting and for interest. And I think alternate shot is something that, you know, has really completely disappeared except you know the mornings of the Ryder Cup or whatever and I think that's part of why match play was so interesting then it's so much more of a team game too like you 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 have to be there for your teammate you can't let them get get down because it's a much 
more challenging format to play because there's more pressure on you. It's challenging psychologically every way. You're, you feel so horrible when you hit your ball into oblivion and you got to then turn around and look at your partner and say, uh, your go here. You feel so much pressure compared to when you're playing your own ball. You also have to consider, you know, when you're hitting a shot, that's an approach. If you're not going to get it there, what does your partner want next? Does he want 90? Does he want 100? What does he want? So there's so many different elements that enter into it. And uh, I think it's the greatest form of golf myself personally. That I, Obviously, I'm in an incredibly shrinking minority on that point. I'm, I'm convinced that the key it, it, match or alternate shot becomes the most fun format to play when your mindset shifts from, oh, shit, I shouldn't have put my partner there to thank God I don't have to hit that next shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know that's what you are thinking but you have to pretend that you're not you have to yeah. pretend that you're feeling remorse yeah but once in your own head you realize oh thank god i don't have to that one yeah no <laughs> it's uh you know it's so much fun to play and you know people's scores are so much higher and i think you know americans don't like it because they can't score that well at it and plus yeah, but- they only play half the shots and, and yeah, and that and that can be a problem if you're playing a course where you really want to play all the shots or whatever. You want to say that you've played the course yes, fully, right. you want but to but when you let go of that, Pinehurst number two, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're not going to do that. But when you when you're able to let go of that, it really you know you're playing fewer shots also because it so it has less of a physical impact, even if the mental component is is a bit more complex. It moves very much quicker as a game too. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It takes about yeah, for you sure. know three hours to play an alternate shot match. Oh yeah. Even if you're pleasant. moving as slow as an American. Yeah. So yeah, we did. We did. Uh, we had a tensum at Lawsonia playing five balls but slingshotting so that at, you're always a hundred yards ahead of your partner. And we, we ended the, we ended the round. We played just over three hours. It was That's incredible. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. All walkers. So Steve, just to, just to wrap up here. Um, do you, do you have a pick for the, um, for Sunday's match? Do you think, uh, or rooting interest? I, I, what I'm rooting for is a close match, you know, something mm. that's exciting. You know, I would say that, I'm not a huge, I'm more of a Tiger fan than a Phil fan. Phil kind of lost a little bit of luster for me when he's running around chasing his ball and knocking it backwards in the middle of the open while it's moving. Uh, Even though he's probably right, I don't think it's very good form to throw Tom Watson under the bus publicly after the Ryder Cup. So, you know, some of the things Phil's done have made me feel not as well as attached to him as, as a lot of people do. So, so, so Tiger is the slight rooting interest. Well, obviously Tiger is the, is if he's not the greatest player ever, he certainly has had the greatest stretch of golf that's ever been played that, that I don't think there can be much dispute about. So, I mean, I have a lot of respect for that as a person who's looked back at the history of the game, just the accomplishments he's had or just stagger the mind. (laughs) 